0: January of 2011, um, Albert Moeller wrote an article titled The Deadly Logic of Anti Blasphemy Laws. And as we consider Jesus's um, Roman trial today, as we consider the charges of blasphemy against him this morning, I want to read a bit of this article to you. So, Albert Moeller is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes this, he says, Blasphemy is a serious matter. Jesus himself underlined the importance with this statement, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's Luke 12, verse 10. Muller explains, In this case, the meaning is clear. Those who resist the work of the Holy Spirit in calling sinners to faith in Christ will never be forgiven. Christianity is not an honor religion. Christ did not call upon his disciples to defend his honor, but to believe in him and to follow him in obedience. And so in this verse, Moeller writes, Jesus affirms that even slander against him can be forgiven. But the unforgivable sin is obstinate rejection of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. In recent weeks... This was written about nine years ago. He says, "...in recent weeks a coalition of Muslim nations has demanded, again, that the United Nations criminalize blasphemy. A considerable number of Christians might, at least at first hearing, think this is a reasonable demand. After all, we do not disagree that slander against the honor of God is a very, very dangerous sin." But anti-blasphemy laws place the power of theological coercion into the hands of the state, and this is deadly dangerous. In Pakistan, for example, section 295C of the Criminal Code states this: quote, Derogatory remarks, etc., in respect of the holy prophet, that is Muhammad. Either written or spoken, or by visible representation, or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation, directly or indirectly, shall be punished with death or imprisonment for life, and shall also be liable to fine. And so on November 8, 2010, a woman named Asia Bibi, a Christian, was sentenced to death by hanging just because she had entered into what was claimed to be a religious argument with Muslims. She was arrested after an Islamic mob surrounded her house and demanded her death. This past Monday, the governor of Punjab was assassinated by one of his own security guards after the governor had stated words in support of Asia Bibi. The assassin said that he murdered Governor Tasir in an act of, quote, protecting Allah's religion. A human rights attorney in Lahore, Pakistan, explained in the LA Times that though no one has yet been executed under the blasphemy laws, quote, at least 32 people have been killed while awaiting trial or, or after they have been acquitted of blasphemy charges. Anti-blasphemy laws serve the honor logic of Islam, but not the evangelistic aims of Christianity. It is wrong to give governments the power of theological coercion. Seen in this light, blasphemy is no small matter, but anti-blasphemy laws are deadly barriers to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, in the last almost 10 years since this article was written, we have seen both a marked increase in people being jailed and even put to death for blaspheming either Muhammad or Allah. We've also seen an increase in opposition to and persecution of Christians. In our own nation, as well as in much of Western Europe, it's become commonplace and acceptable to mock Christians and Christ. And yet as Christians... We are to be like Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christianity is not an honor religion. We don't have to defend the honor of Christ. In fact, this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Because the next verse that Peter mentions in that 1 Peter chapter 2, in, in verse 24, he says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to Righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. We could see this all playing out as we open John's gospel this morning and watch as Jesus is reviled yet did not revile in return. As he suffers yet he does not threaten, but he continues to entrust himself to him who judges justly. And in the verses to come as we continue our study in the coming weeks, he's going to He himself, Jesus himself, as Peter says, will bear our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds that we are seeing him suffer. Right now, in these verses, by his wounds, we have been healed. So, John chapter 19, I'm going to read just verses 7 through 11 this morning. Just these few verses. John nineteen seven. the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me unless at all unless it had been given you from above therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin pray with me again father we are a desperately needy people it is my prayer today is our prayer that you would give us what we need help us to see christ have ears to hear that we might understand we pray in jesus name amen So throughout this book, throughout John's gospel, the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leadership, have increased their their accusations of blasphemy against Jesus. All the way back in chapter 5, they were already after him. In chapter 5, verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. However, up to this point um, in this trial before Pilate, his Roman trial, the Roman governor, Pilate, he seems to have been kind of fixated on the on the kingship of Christ, the fact that Christ was king, um, as opposed to the deity of Christ. Of course, he's doing this. He, he's stressing this phrase, king of the Jews, every chance that he gets. He says this often. It's Pilate that brings this up. It's Pilate that keeps bringing this up. He stresses this over and over again in order to antagonize the Jews, the, the Jewish leadership. And remember, even even though Jesus is the object of the scorn and shame, even though he is the one to whom the violence and the mockery is directed, it really is the people of Israel, people of Judea specifically, the the people of Jerusalem uh, that Pilate and the soldiers hate. Jesus is just another one of them. Jesus is taking the wrath upon himself that That should have been directed to the people. That should have been directed to the people of Israel. And if you're looking, even in that statement, you can see bigger implications there, even for us, right? He's taking the wrath from Pilate and from the Roman soldiers. They're pouring out their wrath upon him, and they hate the people. He did the same for us. But just go back one verse, and I want you to notice the disdain that Pilate has for this Jewish leadership. So look at verse 6 there. It says this. Um, So he has brought him out. In verse 5, he comes out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And actually, this verse, verse 6, really tells us a couple of things about Pilate. One, it shows his personal morality, or lack thereof, right? He says, here's an innocent man, you kill him. That's what he says to them. Here's an innocent man, I find no guilt in him, you kill him yourselves. Not only does it show us his morality or lack thereof, it also shows us his lording lording it over those um, whom he has charge of. And so when he tells them to crucify him themselves, he knows full well that under Roman law, they are unable to execute criminals. Rome had taken that right away from them. Now we know from... Other places in the New Testament, if you're familiar at all with the New Testament, you know that there are times when they did it anyway, where they put people to death anyway. So not long after this, they're going to stone Stephen to death. Paul was once stoned and then dragged outside of the city to die. Of course, he recovered. And then there's the famous scene of the woman caught in the act of adultery in John where they were going to stone her in front of Jesus. But in the end, they dropped their stones and left. But in this instance, there's something else going on here. They are demanding that Jesus be crucified, not stoned. They want him brutally executed, Roman style. They don't want his blood on their hands. But back to Pilate's attitude toward them first, because because there's another thing that we should notice about him, and that is that he he says this to them. He says, take him yourself and crucify him. See, not only did Pilate hold the people in disdain, he he also held their law, God's law, with disdain. You take him yourself and crucify him. Under the Mosaic law, the Jews could never crucify anyone. Their method of execution was stoning. Pilate would have known this. But I would remind you that Even while there seems to be contention between the Jews and the Gentiles, even though there's um, sort of a a battle for power, a battle for authority, a battle of pride between these two groups, between the, the Jewish leadership and between the Roman leadership, in reality, this is Jew and Gentile gathering together to conspire against the Lord and against his anointed. Because even the Jews, in reality, hated God's law. The law that they claimed to love, the law that they claimed publicly to live by. Remember that secret illegal trial before Annas, right back in chapter 18? The trial that had no witnesses, when it was supposed to have two or three. The trial where they assaulted Jesus because of how he talked to a high priest who wasn't really a high priest anymore. Where they illegally condemned him? See, away from the prying eyes of the Romans, they disregarded their own laws. They disregarded God's law. But when they came out in public, they demanded legal action. Crucify him, crucify him. And yet, so that they won't make themselves ceremonially unclean, according to their law, they won't enter into Pilate's headquarters, and instead they stand in the street and yell for his execution. Clearly, by demanding his execution, by Roman crucifixion specifically, they are more afraid of Rome than the anim of God. They have forgotten, or, or maybe we a better way to say it is, they have abandoned God's promise. They have abandoned God's covenant with them from Exodus chapter 19. L- listen to Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. This is the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when he gave them his, his law. Verses five and six, Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And they responded in the next verses. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Those verses really are the, are the Mosaic covenant. Those words were spoken at the foot of Mount Sinai as God is about to give them his law. Starts with the Ten Commandments, then it goes on and gives them 623 laws. The law of the Lord that is perfect, reviving the soul, as David will say in Psalm 19. Incidentally, this um, idea of what we're seeing here, the breaking of that covenant, them abandoning the law, disregarding that covenant, this is what God was referring to in Je- Jeremiah chapter 31 when he promised a new covenant. Listen again. I've read this a lot recently. I think it's appropriate. Listen again to God's promise here of a new covenant. no longer on stone tablets. He's gonna write it on our hearts. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. This is the new covenant. That's what he was promising because they were in the process right here. We see them continuing the, the tradition of breaking God's covenant, rejecting his son. And so Jesus will say, even on the night that he was betrayed, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. While they're in the streets demanding his execution, demanding his crucifixion, breaking God's covenant. He is in the process of making a new covenant with his own shed blood, just as God promised through Jeremiah. Ezekiel, too. But Jesus had warned in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, He said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell in this world, both Jews and Gentiles do not heed this warning. They've disregarded God's warning, Jesus' warning right there in Matthew 10. And as we continue looking at the responses to Jesus in this chapter, the first response that we need to see there is actually fear. The first response of the people here that we can see is fear. Fear. So a So Pilate responds to them, their demands of crucify him. He he responds uh, with sarcasm. You take him and crucify him. Remember, he's just proclaimed three times, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. You take him and crucify him. The Jews finally now with this response, now they have a tactic that works against Pilate to get what they want. It's right here in verse 7. This works. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, on the one hand, this isn't a change in the charges brought against Jesus. We know that the Jews have understood Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, that that, that, that claim, uh, from their point of view, was both religious and political in nature. So, uh, simply put, Jesus is both Savior and King, right? They understood this. But Pil- Pilate started this trial by looking at the political angle. He didn't get the religious angle, he looks at the political angle. Are you the King of the Jews? So they're going to run with it. The Jews will run with this for a little while. They're going to argue the point a little bit, thinking that probably Pilate will, would see this, would see Jesus and his claims as the biggest threat to his power, politically speaking. But the problem was, he didn't. He didn't see Jesus as a threat. Instead, he and his soldiers just mocked them by mocking Jesus, by making that crown of thorns and arraying him with a purple robe and making a big show of bowing down to him. But here now in verse 7, they're going to slightly switch tactics and emphasize those religious elements. They've run with the political for a little bit and it hasn't worked with Pilate. So now we've got to switch and look at the religious aspects. He says, or they say, he has made himself to be God. He has made himself to be God. And that stops Pilate in his tracks. I'm guessing when they made this statement, a little bit of color drains from Pilate's face. They realized right then and there, they could tell, I'm sure, by the look on his face, that they had him where they wanted him. Now their demands will be met. In verse 7 Um, When they say we have a law and according to that law, they are undoubtedly referring to the law of Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. And it simply says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And it's, it's really how they see the phrase son of God that is the hang up for them. See, they understood this to mean that Jesus was claiming the rights to, to such messianic passages, promises of Scripture, such as 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12, 13, and 14, where we read about God's covenant with David. Let me read that. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. They knew that this was about a Savior King, a Messiah King, especially in light of, for example, several of the Psalms, even that David wrote. Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27, which says, He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. They knew that their savior king would be called the son of God. And they said, and he's not it. And he's not it. And they so hated it. When Jesus said things like, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And so this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood this. And they said he's claiming to be the Son of God. We know who the Son of God is supposed to be, and that's not him. But why does, why, does this, why does this question in referring to this law, why does this make Pilate afraid? It's in verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So up until now, Pilate has been flexing his authority, but now he's afraid. He has fear. And actually, the ESV that I use, the English Standard Version, uses even more afraid, but it really can be also translated very much afraid or something along those lines, which is probably closer at catching Pilate's mood. He's very much afraid. The blood drains from his face, and now he's thinking to himself, What have I done? Can this be true? Up until now, Pilate has been cynical and blunt. And he's been more interested in putting the Jewish leaders in their place than in standing up for justice, even when he sees an injustice unfolding before his very eyes. But with as brutal as the Roman government and the Roman military leaders were, they were also deeply superstitious. See, to the Jewish ear, and probably to our ears, The claim to be the Son of God is taken as a claim to be deity. It was a claim to be connected with God, Yahweh, God the Father. It was a a claim to be connected with God as his Messiah and as carrying all of his power and authority. But to the Greek and Roman ears... This claim placed Jesus in this sort of vague category of divine men who are gifted in some way. The Romans believed that these men held some sort of divine, godlike powers. So think, think along the lines of Hercules. That's what Ro- uh, Pilate would have thought of. That's what he was thinking they were saying. Pilate would have believed this, he would have believed in these sort of godlike men, and he's just mocked Jesus. He's just whipped Jesus. He's just had his soldiers put a crown of thorns and twist it onto his head, and they've just made fun of him, bowed down and pretended to worship him. So he's a little bit fearful at this point. Uh, what if this claim is true? What's he going to do to me? At this point, though, Pilate is afraid of this, what he thinks might be a man-god. But he should fear the God-man. The psalmist will write, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And again, he will write, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Man is told repeatedly throughout the Bible to fear God. Last winter, Tom Askell, who is the president of Founders Ministries, he's a pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. They were having a conference at their church. And on the, I think it was the final night of the conference. They were having a Q&A and they had chairs set up few guys up on there and they were talking to the church and he suddenly collapsed fell out of his chair and fell on the floor in front of the church in front of this conference and he's rushed to the hospital and over the next several days was in in and out of responsiveness and he later told the story he's recovered he's back preaching and he later told the story that during that ambulance ride as he was being treated the emt caring for him cursed he swore he swore As people sometimes do, right? And yet, Pastor Tom, even as he thought he was dying, even as he was in and out of consciousness, he managed to whisper two words fear God, to this man who was trying to save his life. Mankind's fear of God should drive him to repentance should drive us to repentance but all too often we are like Pilate, and our pride rises to the surface and takes control that's exactly what we see as he continues to exert his authority here his authority look at verse 9 so in verse 8 Pilate heard the statement he was even more afraid and he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus where are you from But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And so he drags Jesus back inside the praetorium, his headquarters there. And Pilate tries to alleviate his own fears by asking about Jesus' origins. Where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. He opens not his mouth. Do you know why? Do you know why Pilate asks him this question? Where are you from? Do you know why Jesus doesn't answer? Well, first is because he is to fulfill the prophetic scriptures. Passages like Isaiah 53, which says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And really, B, because of Pilate's heart. Pilate has shown zero interest in knowing Christ. He's shown no interest in Jesus at all. He's just a tool, he's just a a pawn in this political game for him. And so when he asks him, Where are you from? There's a problem with this question. The problem is this. Pilate can't begin to understand the answer to that question. Because the answer to that question is not Bethlehem, where he was born. The answer to that question is not Nazareth, where he grew up. The answer to that question is not the family of Mary and Joseph. Jesus has already said to him, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate, Pilate is not interested in listening. Pilate doesn't care where he's from. He just wants to cover his own uh, potential mistakes. Do you think Pilate is suddenly interested in the truth? Where are you from? You must be from some divine being. Tell me about this divine being. What an opportunity to share the gospel, right? Right? Pilate is not interested in the truth. We can plainly see that he is still more interested in political maneuvering than he is in justice. He's interested even now in strutting his own political power. But Jesus has a knack for irritating the irritable, (laughs) for afflicting the comfortable, and his silence does just that. So look at how irritated Pilate gets really quickly. When Jesus doesn't answer him, you will not speak to me? In his mind, this this bound, beaten, bloodied, soon-to-be-crucified prisoner will not speak to me? I'm the Roman governor. He sees Jesus' silence as stupidity at best. Do you know who you're talking to? And at worst, he sees him as stubborn and willfully disrespectful. Pilate is demanding respect. He has authority. He has twofold authority, he tells him. Either I can release you or I can crucify you. Do you know that? This is a desperate plea for respect on Pilate's part. <clears throat> and yet he holds Jesus' life in his hands, doesn't he? Doesn't he hold Jesus' life in his hands? Well, he thinks he does. But look at his answer when Jesus does answer him in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Incidentally, this statement, Jesus' statement here is true of all government authorities. Even the one blaspheming the Son of God right here. Even the one about to put the Son of God, the Savior, even the one about to put the Messiah, to death. Paul will explain in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. But the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This must have been hard for Jesus to swallow when Paul said these words. (laughs) He is God's servant for your good. In this case, he put Pilate, Pilate put Jesus to death for our good. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Jesus bore in his body our sin, he became we wrongdoers. This is the word of God. Pilate does have authority. Jesus acknowledges this here, but he doesn't dwell on it. Instead, he kind of points to God's ultimate sovereignty, even over emperors and governors. Pilate's authority has been given to him from above, he says. Jesus is not absolving Pilate. Kings and governors will be held responsible for how they governed. Pilate will be held responsible for, has been, is being held responsible for how he treated Jesus. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, instead of absolving Pilate, instead of taking away any of the blame, he's actually telling him two things. The first thing that he's telling him is that Pilate is under the oversight of heaven. In fact, it was for this purpose that Pilate was appointed governor of Judea, for the Father to give as a sacrifice his only begotten Son. Pilate would be the one to oversee all of this because Pilate had just the right amount of the fear of man as well as the brutality to do what God's will purposed. And then, second, and I keep reminding you of this, this is a cosmic battle. Jesus says, Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who is this? Who is Jesus talking about here? Well, I can tell you that the commentators, the commentary writers, they really don't know. They don't agree. Everyone thinks they knows. They don't all agree. Um, I want to point out just a couple of things, and I'll give you the options. The first thing that we should see is that when he says, he who, it's singular, not plural. And so Jesus could be referring to Judas, the betrayer. He certainly is guilty of this. He certainly is guilty of a great sin. John stresses that every time he refers to Judas. He calls him the one who betrayed Christ. In fact, that phrase delivered over or handed over is a a form of the Greek verb for for the same word, to betray. So Judas would make sense. But it was actually Caiaphas, the high priest, who handed Jesus over to Pilate. And he certainly is not uh, innocent in any of this. And neither is Annas, for that matter, who was pulling the, the strings behind Caiaphas. This statement tells us a couple of things. And the first thing that we need to see here is there is a greater sin. There is a greater sin. Now, any single sin is enough to bring death. The wages of sin is death. But some will be held to a stricter judgment. This brings us to the second thing that we need to see here in this, and that is this. Certainly the Jews, um, those who possessed God's word, those who who had in their people, in their possession, in their minds and in their memories, written in their uh, foreheads, (laughs) those who had God's word, who had the promises and the prophets, Those who do, were those who were also demanding Jesus' crucifixion, those who heard three times that Pilate, of all people, found no guilt in him, certainly their guilt is severe. Now, I want to put all of this together and apply it to us. In James chapter 3, verse 1, there's a verse that says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Jesus tells us here in verse 11 that there is a greater sin. And whether he is specifically referring to Judas, or Caiaphas, or Annas, or Satan himself, we should take note that there is a greater sin. There is a stricter judgment, a judgment of greater strictness. James tells us specifically that teachers of God's word, the Jews us, fall under that same strict judgment. And so pastor teachers, other church leaders who use their sacred office, the office of elder, pastor, or or use this sacred desk, it is sometimes called, the pulpit, to deny or violate the word of God, likewise commit sins that are particularly grievous and offensive to God. But the same goes for parents who use the Bible to harm their children. Or husbands who use biblical authority to abuse their wives. Whoever is guilty of this greater sin here, don't let this be you. Don't let this be me. Don't let it be me. Don't let it be anybody up here. I've said this before, but it's been a while. Don't ever believe anything you hear from here just because I say it, or any of us. Go back and see if it's true according to the word of God. See if these things are so. Study it yourselves and see. Here's how we need to close today with the gospel. Because Pilate's authority, Peter, uh, Jesus, uses us the simple phrase, it's from above. You would have no authority at all unless it had been given you from above. From above. That means that God is in sovereign control over all things. And in fact, we know this. In James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, James uses the same phrase, from above. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you know what that good and perfect gift is there in James chapter 1? It's life it's eternal life listen again as he he goes on to, to talk about this gift from above he says that he gives it God gives it of his own will this is what God chose to do and he did this of his own free will his actions in salvation are not the result of an accident or a need He didn't look at what is happening to Jesus at the the hands of Pilate and the Jews here and then have to quickly come up with a plan B. There is no plan B. This was the plan. He chose to save and he chose to send Christ in this way. He put Pilate in this place for this to happen in order for our salvation to come about. James goes on and says that he did this of his own will. He brought us forth. Not only is the Father of lights our creator, but he gives us new birth. And the new birth that he gives, it's not like some kind of parasite. (laughs) Read James chapter 1 this afternoon, and, and he will explain that desire brings forth sin and death, but God brings forth life, and he does so by the word of the truth. By the word of truth, which is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. This is what God uses to save us, to give us new life. And this is what we're seeing here in John chapter 19. So 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 23 to 25 says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word is the good news that was preached to you. And the good news is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so we come to the table this morning as sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We come here to do a couple of things. We come to renew God's covenant with us, to remind ourselves to remind one another physically. We're going to be able to taste, hold the little cup and the bread. We're going to remind each other. We're going to be reminded by the Lord that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We're going to be reminded that we are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We're going to renew the covenant, God's promises, the promises that we stand on. And we're going to proclaim his death until he comes. We're going to proclaim that God in his sovereignty sent Jesus Christ to die for sinners.